0: Good evening. I hope this damp and dreary January finds you well. You may have to excuse the sound of my fireplace, which is crackling away here in the background. But it does provide the perfect backdrop for tonight's story, which was written by the famous Irish Gothic writer, Bram Stoker. He was most famous for his 1897 novel, Dracula, which has had an enduring legacy on how vampires are perceived in popular culture. What's less well known is that he was also an accomplished short story writer. The tale I will read for you tonight is called The Young Widow and is set and was written about 120 years ago at around the turn of the 20th century. So, sit back and relax and let the godfather of gothic literature lull you to your rest. A Young Widow by Bram Stoker When I had dusted down the little boy, and he had grown calm after his fright, I lectured him, "'on the danger of coasting down steep hills "'until, at all events, "'he had acquired some mastery of the bicycle. "'He seemed duly penitent "'and acknowledged in his boyish way "'that if I had not ridden after him "'and steered him, he might have been killed. "'He was still tearful when he stammered out, "'I wish my mother could have thanked you. "'Never mind, my boy,' I said. You don't need to say anything at home unless you tell your father. Can't, he said, as his tears burst out afresh. Father is dead years ago. I said no more, but left him at the house which he pointed out as that in which he lived. He told me that his name was Bobby Harcourt and he hoped he would see me again. Why don't you call, he added, as he ran up the steps. As I rode home, I thought to myself that the mother of such a pretty boy must be a sweet creature. A widow, too, I noted mentally. Young widowhood is always more or less a pleasing thought to a bachelor, especially when, like myself, he's beginning to notice his hair thinning on the top. I told Bobby where I lived, so I was not altogether surprised when the next day I got a letter in a lady's hand signed, Ada Harcourt, thanking me for what she deemed the great service I had rendered her and all her family. That letter, even after I had answered it, somehow impressed me, and every morning for a week, as I shaved myself and noticed the thin place on top. My thoughts reverted to it. I always ended by taking it from my pocket and spreading it on the dressing table in front of me. Then I took my courage in both hands and called at the Woodbine Villa. The short time which had elapsed between my knock, which began boldly and ended timidly, and the opening of the door, which was as such as I am told, drowning men experience, filled with a countless multitude of embarrassing memories. The trim maid who opened the door looked a little surprised when I asked if Mrs Harcourt was at home, but with an apologetic, pardon me a moment, sir, darted away, leaving the door open. She came downstairs again, more slowly, and in a somewhat embarrassed giggling way. Ask me, please, to come in. My mistress, sir, she said, will be down in a few minutes, if you will kindly wait. I entered the pleasant drawing room and tried, in the helpless way of embarrassed visitors, to gain some knowledge of my hosts by their surroundings. Everything was pretty, but the faces of all the pictures and photographs were strange so that it was, with recognition of an old friend, that I came across a photograph of Bobby, evidently done some two or three years before. I was ill at ease, for manifestly my coming had in some way disturbed the household. Overheard there was rushing about to and fro, and the sound of drawers opening and shutting, and of doors banging. Then I became gravely anxious, A full sense of my impropriety in calling pressed upon me, for light steps drew near to the door. There entered the room, the most beautiful young woman I thought I had ever seen. Her youth, her dancing eyes, her pink cheeks suffused with blushes, and the lips, full, showing scarlet against her white teeth, seemed to shine through the deep widow's weeds, which she wore as rays of sunshine gleamed through a fog. Indeed, the smile was multiplied, as the gleam of golden hair seemed to make the weeded cap a solemn mockery. She advanced impulsively and shook me warmly by the hand. As with very genuine feeling, she thanked me for my heroic rescue of dear Bobby. At first she seemed somewhat surprised at my appearance and, seeing with a woman's instinct that I noticed it, said frankly, how young you are. Why, from what Bobby told me, I thought you were an old, a much older man. The thin space seemed to become conscious as though a wave of either heat or cold had passed over it. And as I somehow seemed to recognize in the fair widow an understanding soul, I bent my head so that she could see the telltale place as I remarked, To children, we grown ups often seem older than we are. In a demune way and in a veiled, not to say smothered voice, she answered, Ah, yes, that is so. To us who have known sorrow, time passes more quickly than to their light-hearted innocence. Alas, alas. She stopped suddenly and, putting her deeply edged handkerchief to her face, gasped out, Pardon me, I shall return in a moment, and left the room hurriedly. I felt more than uncomfortable. I had evidently touched on some tender chord of memory. So, what I could not guess. All I could do was to wait till she returned and then take myself off as soon as possible. There was some talking and whispering on the stairs outside. I could not hear the words spoken, for the door was shut. But suddenly it opened, and Bobby, red faced and awkward, shot into the room. He was a different boy now. There were no tears no sadness, no contrition. He was a veritable mass of fun, full of laughter and schoolboy mirth. As he shook hands with me, he said, I hope mother has thanked you properly and turned away and stamped with some kind of suppressed feeling. The way of boys are hard to understand. When Mrs Harcourt returned, which she did very shortly, now quite composed, and looking more beautiful and more charming than ever, Bobby slipped away. There was, somehow, a greater constraint about his mother. Some impalpable veil seemed to be between us. She was as if more distant from me. I recognised its import and shortly made my adieu. As she bade me goodbye, she said that we might perhaps never meet again, as she was shortly going to take the boy abroad, but that she rejoiced that it had been a privilege to meet face-to-face, his brave preserver. She used more of such phrases, which for days after seemed to hang in my memory like sweet music. The maid, when she let me out, seemed sympathetic and deferential, but there was, in her manner, a concealed levity which somehow "'grated on me. "'For the next fortnight, "'I try to keep Mrs Harcourt "'out of my thoughts, "'with the usual result. "'You can't serve ejectments "'on thoughts. "'They are tenants at will, "'their own will, "'and the only effect "'of struggling with them "'is that they banish everything else "'and keep the whole field "'to themselves. "'Working or playing, "'waking or sleeping.' walking, riding or sitting still, the sweet, beautiful eyes of Mrs Harcourt were ever upon me and her voice seemed to sound in my ears. I found that my bicycle carried me, seemingly of its own will, past her door on every occasion when I had to use a lamp. Seeing clearly that her intention of foreign travel had not been carried out, I ventured, at least one day, in an agony of perturbation, to call again. When I was opposite the house, I thought I saw in the window the back of Ada's head. I had come to think of her as Ada now. I was, therefore, somewhat surprised when, after some delay, the maid, with a demure face, told me that Mrs Harcourt was not at home. I felt almost inclined to argue the matter with the maid, who was now giggling, as on the former occasion, when suddenly Bobby came running out of the back hall and called to me. Oh, Mr. Dennison, won't you come in? Ma is here. I will be delighted to see you. He threw open the door of the drawing room, which was the first room of the ground floor, and ushered me in. "'turning round and grinning at me as he said, "'Ma, here is Mr. Dennison. "'Come to see you. "'Excuse me, coming in.' "'With that, he went out, shutting the door behind him. "'I think she was as much startled and amazed as I was "'as she stood facing me with her cheeks a flaming red. "'She had discarded her widow's weeds "'and was now in a simple grey frock with pink bows at the neck and waist, which made her look years younger than even she had done before. Her beautiful golden hair was uncovered. As I advanced, which I did with warmth, for it seemed to me somehow that the discarding of the widow's dress opened up new possibilities to herself, she bowed somewhat coldly. She did not, however, refuse to shake hands though she did so timidly. I felt awkward and ill at ease. Things were not somehow going as smoothly as I wished, and the very passion that filled me made its repression a difficulty. I couldn't remember a single thing which either of us said at that interview. I only recollect taking up my hat and moving off with a mingled chagrin and diffidence When I was near the door she came impulsively after me and taking me by the hand said This is goodbye indeed as I shall not be able to see you again. You will understand, will you not? Her words puzzled me but she had made a request and such, though it entailed denial of my own wishes could only be answered in one way. I put my hand to my heart and bowed. As I walked away, all the world seemed a blank space, and myself a helpless atom whirling in it, alone. That night I thought of nothing but Mrs. Harcourt, and with the grey of the dawn, my mind was made up. I would see her again, for I feared she would leave without ever knowing my feelings towards her. I got up, and wrote her a letter, saying that I would do myself the honour of calling that afternoon, and that I trusted she would see me, as I had something very important to say. When I retired to bed, after posting the letter, I fell asleep, and went on dreaming of her, and my dreams were heavenly. When I knocked at the door in the afternoon, the maid looked all demure, and showed me without a word, into the drawing room. Almost immediately following her exit, Mrs Harcourt came in. My heart rejoiced when I saw that she was dressed as on the previous day. She shook hands with me gravely and sat down. When I had sat also, she said, You wanted to say something to me? Yes, I answered, quickly, for the fervour in me was beginning to speak. I want to tell you that, with a gesture, she stopped me. One moment. Before you say anything, let me tell you something. I have a shameful confession to make. In a foolish moment, I thought to play a joke, never thinking that I might reflect on my dear dead mother. Bobby is not my son. He is my only brother who has been in my care since my mother died years ago, when he told me of the brave way you saved him, and when the kind letter you sent in answer to mine showed me that you had mistaken our relationship, and I said what a lark it would be to pretend, if occasion served, to be his mother. Then you called, and a spirit of mischief moved me to a most unseemly joke. I dressed up in mother's clothes and tried to pass myself off as Bobby's mother. When I had seen you and recognised your kindness, I seemed in all the ways a brute. But all I could do was try that it might go on no more. Oh, if you only knew. She put her pretty hands before her face and I saw the tears drop through them. That pained me but it gave me heart. Coming close to her, I shook her hands and pulled them away and looked into her brave eyes as I said, Well, let me speak. I must, I must. I came here today to ask you to, won't you let Bobby be my brother too? And he is. <laughs>